So today is uh, cover crops as forage, and I kind of had a subtitle there, the one-two punch. And the thinking behind that has to do with there's a lot more benefits that that occur when we use cover crops as forage. And as you will see, I want to uh, discuss a couple of the options of forage, and they, they come in two basic forms. Uh, cutting them as, as hay or sometimes uh, baleage or, or wet hay, we'll call it wet forage and wrapped or ensiled, whatever. And then I'm going to touch a little bit on grazing as well. So uh, you can have these benefits that we have with cover crops, but then they, fortunately, a lot of the species that we use for cover cropping can also double up as a forage. And that's really convenient. That's really nice. And I've often thought it's nice we don't have like two complete different sets of crops. Now, there are certain crops that favor forage productions and certain cover crops that favor, favor more of the cover crop uh, production. And this is where we kind of have to step back and that question that we ask all the time, uh, what am I trying to accomplish? Uh, so if we're going to be trying to grow cover crops in the context of using them as forage, then we do have to rethink about seeding rates and planting dates. Even fertility comes into play a little bit more in how you want, how much you want to push it for forage. And of course that gets backed up to your, uh, your, your history of your farm and your soil condition and all that. So that's just a little basis of, uh, that line of what I'm going to talk about today. And I'm going to share a little bit some of my, uh, from my personal experience with this. I'm getting more and more involved in, in doing forage because I've seen the benefits and that is becoming more clear as, as we kind of go down this journey collectively where, uh, cover crops, uh, slash forages are certainly gaining more ground, getting more popular because of the multiple benefits that come, that can come out of that. <clears throat> so, uh, this is just a picture here of last week cutting some triticale, uh, pretty much ideal conditions, just a few heads starting to show. This is for a neighbor, uh, growing for, uh, an Amish neighbor here actually. And, uh, so again, we got the nice benefits of what the cover crop gave us, erosion control in the winter and keeps the soil covered, uh, has the soil biology and all that going on, uh, all the normal cover crop stuff. But here we're, we're taking it off. Now I will tell you, uh, quickly <clears throat> or should say briefly that in this particular field, I tried something that was kind of new for me is uh, I the, the, my neighbor asked if I could grow some orchard grass for him. And I said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. So this spring I planted some orchard grass in there. And you can't really see it down there, but it's there. And I think it's a decent stand in spite of how thick this cover crop was. So, so trying to bunch up different plantings and so forth. Sometimes is, uh, is, is something you can do. I'm not going to focus a lot on that particular aspect, but just to say that the whole aspect of using a triticale or a winter cereal rye has, uh, really, really came on, come on strong, particularly for people who already have animals or the dairy industry and so forth. So, um, I just took this picture here this morning of my Amish neighbor's field. Uh, there, where he took off cereal rye and then came back in, spread some manure and then no-tilled corn in behind it. 
So his forage in this case is is the uh, cereal rye that came off, and then he went back in and planted corn. And this is a very popular strategy to be used, and uh, particularly around my area here in southeastern Pennsylvania, where we do have a lot of dairy. I would say clearly uh, more than 50%, probably 75% of the dairy farmers are now using what we would typically call cover crop. It's mainly cereal rye, but more and more triticale every year, uh, in, in that they're taking that off and, uh, and siling that, putting it in a silo and, and then planting corn behind it. So uh, it's basically just to get more tonnage off the fields. And uh, the other thing, too, is where you have uh, animals, uh, then you also have manure. So uh, it, it gives a... It, to, to have the nutrients to grow this extra forage is usually not a problem because they're already there. So uh, that's just a dynamic that kind of works uh, works well in the context of uh, of the industry and of the dairy industry and so forth in that. So uh, a better utilization of manure is definitely another reason to grow forages. And, yeah, these guys are, are, are pushing it. They're getting a lot of stuff out of there. And again, this is in a high rainfall environment, uh, so I, I I know there's people listening right now that are in a low rainfall environment that this much intensity probably would not work. Uh, but you just have to step back and and do what uh, what you need to do. And uh, for those who were on this <clears throat> before our conversation began today, <clears throat> yeah, we I, I am in an area that gets more rainfall, but we're we're getting too much rain now, and it's causing some issues. So I like to remind my dry land friends that just because our averages of rainfall are up, there's some, some, sometimes it, it also hurts us. And uh, uh, and I'll just quick to mention, too, in our conversation before this started, it's clear that where cover crops <clears throat> are used, we are able to get in our fields a little sooner and plant and have better conditions. So uh, that's, again, just some of the – Pros and cons out there of uh, wet and dry areas. But I want to focus most of our time today on more of a, what I'm going to call a summer double cropping slash forage opportunities that are out there. Because this is maybe more of the, of, of a, I guess say of a, of a newer aspect in the context of cover crops and uh, also, maybe to challenge, I'm going to end up here challenging uh, some of the rotations that we have relied on in the past may not be as good as uh, opening up the box, so to speak, of other options that we could use for, cor- for, for cover crops slash forage instead of kind of the historic go-to of using field corn uh, to meet that uh, purpose. So uh, this is just... Uh, Picture of one of my fields. This was two years ago where I planted sun hemp and sorghum sedan grass. I have it listed down there, 10 pounds of each. And, again, these uh, numbers, I'm going to show you some seeding rates, but they do have to be adjusted to your area and to what you're trying to accomplish and what balance do you want to have. Uh, what is your fertility? If a uh, if a farmer has a lot of manure, he's probably going to lean heavier on grass-type forages. If they don't, like I don't have very much uh, uh, access to manure for my farm, so I 
will utilize a cover crop like sun hemp. And you can see a close up here. This is some of the nodulations of the sun hemp right out of that field I just showed you that is helping the sorghum sedan meet its potential. So uh, mixing species for forages, it's no different than we the way we mix species for our general cover cropping. It comes down to what are you trying to accomplish by that. So, uh, again, that ha that is more of a personal choice for what you're trying to accomplish and actually what works in your area. Um, and what is amazing is the rapid growth that you can get sometimes out of some of these summer forages. Uh, and if, if you're going to be gone for the forage aspect of it, it is simply sometimes I would say amazing how quickly they can grow, uh, obviously providing the decent moisture here. And, you know, you can, you can sometimes in, in as short as, as six or seven weeks, you can have a tremendous amount of biomass that is grown to be able to be utilized for, for a forage application. So it's, it's sometimes, uh, you almost have to do this to experience it. <clears throat> yeah, of course, granted, uh, summer times can be fickle with rainfall and so forth, but when you have cover crops that we use for forage like sorghum sedan and like uh, sun hemp, they do very well on drier conditions. And that's why you have to plant the right ones in order to be able to to achieve what you're trying to do. And to, usually if we're talking forage, we want to maximize production. So uh, being able to, uh, there's, there's all different kinds of ways to do uh, double cropping. Uh, we, you know, it depends what you're going to call it there with, with forage. Uh, you can make it dry, but typically it's, when you have a sorghum sedan grass, it's tough to dry out unless you're in a very dry climate or have some very dry weather. And also just the quality that you're able to get by baling it wet, either wrapping big round bales, wrapping square bales, or, or actually chopping it in the field and blowing in a silo or an ag bag or something like that. Typically, your best quality is going to come from uh, that type of a situation. That's not saying you can't do it dry. But uh, most of what I'm familiar any with is is done wet for for a number of reasons. So, and just uh, you know, continue to think and evaluate how you can maximize the the production. You're going to have to suit it to your area, as I indicated, and how to harvest and so forth. And then you also need to think: Are you going to go for a one cut or a two cut? And when you Consider that that will dictate how low you might want to cut it uh, the first time you cut it. If you're going for a second cut, which, for instance, in my area last year, we had a relatively higher moisture uh, summer. It made sense to try to go for two cuttings. Uh, I'm not sure if I did the right thing by doing that or not, which I'm going to show you later. But uh, that being said, you want to cut it a little higher to get a quick regrowth. Just a little practical bit of advice there to do that. Uh, that, that you want to don't cut it low to the ground because you want that regrowth to come out quickly. Uh, last week we touched on the choice sometimes that we have to make between double cropping or, uh, or cover cropping. And I, I wanted to put this uh, slide in here because uh, some of us like numbers. And I just ran some numbers here, and you have to put your own numbers in. The, the price of hay in our area is typically higher than a lot of regions because of the big demand for it. 
So uh, this is based on some actual data off my farm here in southeastern Pennsylvania. This would have been two years ago. I got 2.5 tons of dry matter uh, per acre of uh, sorghum sedan sun hemp. There's pictures I showed you. And uh, I sold it for 140 bucks a ton. The nice thing about when you do this, you generally don't need herbicides. And I like that. It saves me money, and I try to avoid it when I can. So that's an op- opportunity right there. Or we just compare it with uh, 30 bushel beans. And, um, you know, it's very competitive if you're just looking at the economics. But <clears throat> the problem with beans is usually you're very, very late, and you can't get a decent cover crop planted after they come off. And sometimes you can spin them on uh, the seeds and broadcast them before harvest at leaf drop. That does work sometimes, not every time. But um, you may it, it really comes down to if you have a market or not for uh, for your forage if you don't have animals. And that's kind of where I'm at. And I would have to say the market kind of came to me because I do have neighbors, a lot of Amish neighbors, who just simply don't have enough land to support the amount of animals they need to have to to make a living. So that's a benefit I kind of have in my backyard. But if you already have animals or are considering getting animals, wow, it's just a big opportunity here to be able to take things up, not just one notch, but I think several notches when you bring cattle onto your landscape, onto your soil. And this here is a picture of that field I show you where the round bales were. And this is the second I guess you, I'll call it the regrowth out of that. And that's the way I like to go into the fall. That's the way I like to go into the winter. We had a couple of frost you can see that killed the regrowth of the sorghum sedan. The sun hemp in this case pretty much don't count in much regrowth from sun hemp. It doesn't really have that ability, uh, unless you cut it really young and cut it high. Uh, it's not very practical. And grazing, yes, if you don't graze it too hard, it can regrow. But, uh, just a picture here of what can happen again in, in what, in depending on your scenario. And, and this would have been planted after wheat just to give you the perspective. Got a cutting off and a really nice, uh, regrowth. So, and when you look, uh, when you take a little closer look there and look down through there, this is the exact same field I just showed you. I have all kinds of different other cover crops in there. There's actually some lupins and you can see the radishes and some, uh, uh, Oats uh, hasn't been killed yet, and there's some hairy vetch in there as well. Uh, this is just a great uh, system going into the the winter. So I like to call this a one-two punch because I actually got some forage and I got enough regrowth here to go into the winter, kind of like a normal cover crop would uh, do. So uh, that was in 2016, and I hope that might have given you some ideas uh, 2017 last year, I decided to ratchet things up a little bit. And, uh, after wheat, I planted, uh, I, I planted, um, <clears throat> a couple different things attempting here to make a cutting or two of my forage and then have a nice cover crop going into the winter. So when you look at my rates there, sorghum sedan and sun hemp, those two are going to freeze out. Uh, after, after my regrowth. So let's just walk through here. This, this is, we're, we're going to be planting this after wheat. I'm going to take a cutting off, which is going to be like 99% sorghum sedan sun hemp probably. I have my radishes, hairy vetch, triticale, and crimson clover in there basically for overwintering. Now, when I did this with one cut, 
in 2016. It worked fairly well. Uh, so I thought, let's, let's just see if I can, you know, keep things, take things up a little bit a, a notch here. So, um, in this case, we, this is my first cutting of that mix. And we, again, as I said, we had a very, very good, uh, rainy, uh, summer. I guess you're going to say it. And it is unusually wet and it did cause some problems and some things, but really gave me a good second cutting here. And so I had this second cutting and I was debating whether or not I should take this or just leave it go. And I, uh, what I saw at the second cutting in my evaluation is it did not look like my hairy vetch, triticale and all the winners had, it didn't look like they survived. So I thought I might as well just take this off and replant right away. So that is indeed what I decided to do. I um, I took the second cutting off here and went back in and planted, essentially replanted a cover crop for the winter. So my idea in this case did not work. And I think partly the reason was we had such a prolific growth from the sorghum sedan uh, early on with the rain we had that it just simply choked out my little other seedlings that were, seedlings that were just struggling to survive underneath there. So not sure if I'm going to try this again. Uh, I do believe, though, that if you're not planning on taking a forage or if you're in a drier land area and you want to put something in after wheat or you have a window of opportunity for the summer, that if you keep your rates down of the summer annuals like the the sorghum, Sudan, the sun hep, if you keep those rates down, you could plant these uh, winter covers, uh, which would be early, but they'll just be under the understory there, and they will really come to life when the first uh, frost comes through and takes out the uh, the summer annuals, so the sunlight will come in. So I think this will work. I think the reason it didn't work for me, again, was it just the shading the aspect of it that, that just choked them out. So... You don't know if you don't try, and uh, I like to show you guys some of my failures just so uh, at least at least uh, you may not have to make the same mistakes I did, or you may have a little different approach to it that may work in your situation. So I wanted to, uh, shifting gears a little bit, the other component of using cover crops as a forage is uh, grazing, and and as I stated, I can't overemphasize this enough if you're considering this or have the opportunity to do this i would strongly encourage you to uh to to go for it and uh first of all you know you you gotta you gotta learn uh, some of the aspects of it because if you're a guy like me i don't have uh very much animal experience at all my grandfather used to grow steers but it was more in a like uh, in a feedlot situation here, he, I never remembered seeing any cattle grazing on the farm. That which I, I'm actually on my grandparents' farm here. I never saw cattle grazing in my whole life, so I don't have the experience uh, that uh, in handling cattle. That being said, I'm interested in it, and I'm going to show you uh, where I'm headed here soon. But uh, but using cattle in 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 the context of your cover crops and your whole overall farm. Is is a very good a, a very good uh, approach, and I'm kind of uh, I guess you'd say amazed at some of the people out there that I'm starting to see who are now bringing cattle onto the land. And uh, there's even some in our group here. And uh, if you check check out our 
our uh, Facebook once in a while, you'll see some of the posts where uh, bringing cattle back to the land. So one of the things, though, I'm just going to go over some basic components here that if you do bring cattle on, and I understand there's probably some people listening to this that are quite experienced and some that are just thinking about it. So I'm going to be fairly general here on this. But you got to plant early or have an earlier establishment if you're going to have cattle to graze. And you also have to, again, ask that question, what are you trying to accomplish? Because if you uh, want to get all the benefits that you know about cover crops, and then all the benefits you may have heard about what grazing does, there's going to have to be some compromise in between there. In other words, you don't want to just grow your cover crop and then graze it to the ground, graze it to the roots. Uh, but in the case of situations where you're short on feed, well, then you might want to graze a little harder. I, I get that, but then you don't want to overdo it so that your field's bare or, or there's nothing there to keep the soil covered. So there's compromises in this whole thing. But getting it planted earlier is always a recommended choice for even cover crops. But don't expect to plant a cover crop in November and cattle are grazing it first thing in the spring. It's just common sense. So you got to get uh, that cover crop plant as early as possible and there's all different kinds of ways. We've talked about this many times, how to do that, short season corn, growing uh, some small grains where you can. But another thing that's uh, uh, fairly important is to make sure you increase your seeding rate, at least most of the time. Uh, you need to do that. Now, usually that's about double the typical cover crop seeding rate. So if you're familiar with, with just rates that are used for cover cropping, basically rule of thumb, Double that if you're going to graze, and, and that's a good starting point to, to jump off. So uh, the other thing in, in grazing I just wanted to mention is make sure there's adequate fertility. And again, the term there is adequate. That's the key word because there's so many variables and so many different soils and and ge geography and manure history and all that. Some fields will need very little, if any, additional fertility. Other fields may require more. So, uh, again, that's going to be a call you're going to have to make on that. Uh, but I'm going to I'm going to share a little bit uh, my thinking on that as I as I give you some of the recipes that I'm using here. But fertility is a is is now it becomes a, a more important aspect when <clears throat> when we're cover cropping. I like to say that I'm not concerned about growing the maximum biomass of my cover crop. I'm more concerned about feeding the biology, and I don't need to have, you know, a huge, robust, uh, high-yielding plant that's a cover crop if that if my goal is not necessarily to produce biomass or forage. But if I'm trying, if my goal is to provide forage, as I said, I'm going to want to increase my seeding rates, and I'm going to want to look at my fertility. And that's going to be a personal decision how far you push it on that, your cropping history, and all that. But Nonetheless, very, very important. So let's talk about some of the species that are popular for forage. Um, nothing new here. Uh, sorghum sedan and straight sedan, straight sorghum, millet, cowpeas, sunhemp. There's some of the more popular ones. There's, you know, a list that could go on and on, but uh, these are the ones that are used mainly over the summer, and every single one of them grow fast, and almost every single one of them, I would say, is pretty much drought tolerant. Uh, millet may be the weakest, weakest one there for drought tolerant, 
maybe cowpeas. But, um, and again, you'll have to figure out what does work in your area, but that's just kind of like your, your first go-to list, if you will. For, uh, planting in the fall, if, for, or for grazing in the fall, and, and, and or taking a harvest, both, both these here would, 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 uh, would work. If you're able to plant late summer, let's just say after, um, a wheat or something like that, a small grain, you get oats, spring oats planted in time or an annual ryegrass, maybe triticale or maybe cereal rye. You can actually graze it or take a cutting. Um, actually for annual ryegrass, triticale and cereal rye, that's a great idea to take some of it off with a either a cutting or a grazing in order for it to survive the winter. Because if you plant those latter three there, in the con, in, in, and they grow like more than a foot tall. They could smother themselves out and maybe not survive the winter very good. So, um, that's just kind of like a, a, another little practical, uh, advice there, uh, for that. So if you want to be, uh, using forage for the spring, then we're looking to annual ryegrass and of course triticale cereal rye, which, uh, cereal rye would undoubtedly be the most popular. Uh, you got crimson clover. Austrian winter peas and hairy vetch. These are some of the more popular ones that could be used in a um, in a spring situation for forage. I I could have put on there winter oats, and you may have heard me mention a time or two. I am actually growing winter oats now. I really like it. It survived our winter here. We got down below zero three times, uh, so for us that was pretty cold. But just saying uh, to give you a, a reference point. Uh, there is some winter oats that do over winter that really show some good forage potential. Uh, I uh, actually had some last year, and we uh, mixed it in as a nurse crop for orchard grass. They were planted in this case at the same time. I, I planted the winter oats in the spring, actually, and uh, with a nurse crop of alfalfa and orchard grass. And that first cutting was over 50% was that winter oat. And the farmer who bought the hay said, I wish you'd have a lot more of that because the cows really, really like that oats. So uh, there's something to be said about the species that are out there and choosing the ones that are correct. Forage is really what you're looking at. And like I said, there's a lot of overlap between the good cover crops and also the ones that can be used for forage. But getting a little bit more specific here, some of the characteristics now that we want to favor or that we want to look at when we're talking about forage are listed here. And um, you may have heard of BMR. as short for brown midrib. I actually have a picture there on the side that you can actually see it's named after that. But uh, in spite of just the, the appearance, it has more to do with the digestibility of the forage. And um, it's... It's something that's been around for a while, but in the last, I'm going to say, 10, 15 years or so, it's really come to, it's almost the brown midrib or the BMR is kind of like the, the elite type forages. Um, and it's not that you want to always do that because there, there could be some other trade-offs, but BMR type forages are definitely preferred, and I would say, uh, gaining, gaining a lot of, uh, interest here. So I wouldn't mind. I see that Chris McCracken's on if, uh, when we're done here, if he could, uh, I know Chris knows a lot about this and probably others as well. 
uh, could just share a little bit about that BMR aspect. Um, other characteristics, though, of the of cover crops slash forage, uh, when we're looking more toward the forage side, is the dwarf varieties that are coming out. In other words, they're a little bit shorter and uh, you, know, you don't have lodging problems as much and that kind of stuff. Then there's this choice between energy versus protein. And, you know, we all know that protein mainly comes from uh, the legumes have higher protein and the grasses tend to have more energy. So, uh, what are you, again, what are you trying to accomplish with your forage? And what are you feeding this to? What's, what's the, the maturity of the livestock? What type of livestock? All this enters in when you're choosing what type of forage to grow. And, uh, and also, you're going to target a multi-cut versus a single cut. So just some practical things to consider. I would say that if you're unfamiliar with some of this and you're interested in this, talk to a trusted seed person that you work with to really fine-tune uh, what what you can do here. So for um, another suggestion I have here for droughty-type soils, soils that tend to dry out, and and I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning this because I've, I've heard there's a little bit of a trend going this way uh, in, in, in the regions where you have either drier fields or you have live in a region you just don't get a lot of summer moisture. So one of the, one of the plans here is, uh, in planting your triticale in the fall and, and getting a, a, typically speaking, you get a really, really nice first, or a nice cutting off that triticale. And you're taking advantage of what's typically there's decent spring moisture. And then coming in with sorghum sedan or a mix of similar type uh, uh, crops, and you may be able to take two cuttings or more. What's nice is you, there's no herbicides needed after the triticale comes off. You take it off, and even if there's a little regrowth, it doesn't matter. Uh, you plant your sorghum sedan. It loves the heat in the summer and the dryness. And actually, I've heard people say that, Taking two cuttings of sorghum sedan on a dry year, you may get more tonnage than actually corn. So uh, rather than growing corn, uh, like in a silage situation, uh, you know, you may have to make up for what the grain of the corn gives a little bit when you're ration. But then going back to triticale in the fall. And another nice thing about a system like this, it really opens up options for spreading manure. Because when you're growing corn, you don't have that summer option. And for some people, this is a... This is an important aspect. Um, so, so that's just uh, something to consider. I see that uh, there's a question here. Marion uh, typed in. I appreciate those chats questions you put in. He asked, if, "Do the millets have the BMR trait?" And uh, I might have to defer to the end there. I'm pretty sure they do. I, I certainly don't consider myself an expert in this forage uh, component, but uh, let's open that question up when we get. We'll get to the end here, and uh, there's other people here that could really help to know that. So um, I just wanted to show you here some of the uh, stuff that uh, I am doing uh, on my farm and with forages. And, and, again, my situation is this. I have neighbors who uh, need forage, and I really welcome that opportunity to grow it. So I'm going to be specific here in varieties because sometimes you like to know that. There's dozens of varieties out there. Uh, I work with several different companies um, in this here. I try to learn all I can with it. But um, I've used, I really like Fridge Triticale. Uh, it's very, very winter hardy and very good forage value, very good tonnage. 
And uh, we just harvested some. Uh, we're late this year. I had some planted very late. We just harvested last week. It was about prime. Uh, it was just, just I would say, slightly past boot stage. You could hardly see any uh, seed heads yet. And then I'm going to be planting uh, probably tomorrow or within two days a summer mix of a dwarfs, uh, BMR dwarf sedan grass and a millet. And uh, planting on two cuttings at this point. And then back to triticale in the fall. So that's just a scenario there that's working out. Work again, working with my neighbors, working with their feed men, and and so forth. Uh, I, again, I'm finding out that that's that's really helpful when you start getting a market uh, that that you're able to you you got to work with uh, the people you want to sell it to. What do they want, and what do they want to put in their ration and it takes a little extra step, but it locks you in a little bit tighter with your market when you're growing specifically. So I personally have found that to be very effective in this whole thing of growing cover crops for forages. Now, I'll just say that you don't want to spend the money on a BMR dwarf sedan grass as a cover crop, okay? So this is where we're going to favor the forage aspect of this. Now, the beautiful thing of it is, is I have a lot of uh, life going on over the summer a lot of growth and uh, and so forth in my soil, and and I don't know if if there's uh, uh, any scientific truth truth to this, but Sudan grass has historically been known to be really good for the soil, and there's a lot of aspects to come with that, and I just love to get that in my mix once in a while. Now you see this mix I have here. I'm not going to be doing this in all my fields every year. This is going to get rotated around the farm. So being able to mix it up, being have this opportunity to mix up the diversity of my farm, I feel is a huge benefit uh, uh, in, in the whole context of this. So uh, my other plan here is after wheat comes off in our, in our area, it's around the first week of July, I'm going to plant some uh, Sugar Pro um, <clears throat> Sorghum Sudan. And again, it's another, has a BMR trait in it. And here's where I'm planning on grazing this. Uh, I have a neighbor that I'm working with on that. And um, so this is a grazing situation here. And we'll graze it uh, once or twice, uh, see how uh, what the weather treats us and, 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 and everything uh, that. So <clears throat> I just wanted to – I'm wrapping it up here now, but I wanted to show you this picture. Uh, I literally just took this picture about an hour before the webinar started. Uh, just yesterday – we finished uh, a fence here. Uh, so this is my neighbor, and we just installed this fence so he could bring his cattle over onto my fields. So I, I, I love the uh, the idea of uh, grazing. I'm not a cattleman, and uh, so this is a kind of a win-win for both. He does need extra forage, usually in the summer. And so I get to have his cattle over when I want them, and I send them back when they're done. He can take care of them the rest of the year. And um, that's just something that's working out for me. But uh, this this kind of stuff just doesn't happen. I mean, I had to talk with him and discuss the, the plan and so forth. But it's kind of exciting for me to get some of these benefits of, of grazing over over to our farm that's coming up. So, it's kind of like the latest thing here of what's happening on my farm personally with forages. So uh, that pretty much uh, wraps up my conversation today on on the forages. I'm going to open up the microphone uh, for everybody, 
And I'll just ask uh, Chris McCracken if you're available and could turn your microphone on. I wouldn't mind to hear your uh, can, if you could answer the question on uh, the BMR trait. If it's also millets as well, um, or uh, yeah, Chris, go ahead. Hey, Steve. Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, yeah. So there is a new uh, um, pearl millet, uh, okay. both a brachitic dwarf. Um, as well as has that brachitic, that, that BMR trait. And, uh, that BMR, as you mentioned, is basically a, a uh, it's a marker, you know, for high, higher digestibility. So when you were talking about that a little bit ago, that's what we're, we've been finding both with the millets and with the, uh, uh, sorghum products that, uh, um, a lot of times the, um, the forage qualities is as equal to, if not even higher than the corn silage. Wow. And, but you're getting your energy from that digestible NDF rather than the grain itself. Right. So, but, but that, yeah, that's, to me, that's been one of the most exciting uh, aspects is, is these new millets. Um, okay. Uh, the, the, uh, with the addition of the BMR trade. Awesome. What is the, um, and, and what is, what is the negative things that may come along? Anything negative we should be aware of with the BMR trait? Yeah, you know, a few years ago, I would say yes, it would have been on yield. Okay. Uh, there, there was yield drags. I bet okay. in today's world, uh, all the attention has been put on the, with the, these new BMRs, especially the BMR6 mm-hmm. uh, genetics. Um, mm-hmm. And there's really no yield drag anymore. Okay. In fact, in a lot of times, you're looking at a sorghum sedan grass or something like that, you can actually lower your seeding rates because one of the biggest reasons for bumping that seeding rate up on the conventionals is to get that, that stem a little bit thinner and get a little yeah. higher quality. Right. Um, and now we can get, you know, the, the quality of the, of the BMRs even in the stock is equal to or better than that of the conventionals. Mm-hmm. We can lower our seeding rates down there to about 30 or 40, 40 pounds, depending on the um, variety. Good. I see um, Herb is on as well. Herb, I don't know if you can, you want to provide any more, uh, anything else to that, but thanks so much, Chris. That was very, that was just what I needed there. Uh, a little expert advice because I know you're doing that. Uh, Herb, I see you're on. I don't know if your mic, you can get on or not with your microphone, but, uh, wouldn't mind hearing anything more because I know that you work with a lot of forages as well and cover crops. Yeah, go ahead, Herb. Hey, there we go. All right. I was having trouble getting my mic turned on. Yeah. Um, uh, we really do like our Sudan by Sudan crosses. We're playing with a lot of pearl millets now, okay. right? So uh, pearl millet and the BMRs is, I think anything with BMR attached is probably worthwhile looking at okay. pretty close. Okay. Um, yeah, the drag is not there. Yeah. Um, so, yep. Okay, good. Is there anybody else? I'm not sure uh, if anybody else is familiar with uh, any of this uh, or, or what other questions might you have? I'll just put it out there. What was there, What are some questions you have? We got some got some put good people here in this call. So um, if I don't know the answer, someone else might. Well, I have a I have a question about the soybeans. Okay. Did anybody ever use soybeans as a forage? Because I've been told that they were that was the original purpose of bringing them. Canada or the U.S. Okay, I I don't know um, any of you forage guys. Uh, where where does soybeans fit into this whole thing here? Anyone else want to comment on that? I uh, I'm assuming that, and I I agree, uh, Scott, what you said. I've heard that too. That soybeans used to be used as a forage, and actually, ironically, I see you're on, Chris. Just a second, but I, ironically, Harry Vetch 
used to be a forage of choice until alfalfa came along. And then Harry Vetch is, was relegated, I guess I could say that, uh, to just being used as a cover crop more or less. But uh, any comments, uh, Chris, on, on forage soybeans and their role? Yeah, I mean, we're, uh, there, there's, I mean, it's not just any soybean, obviously. There are some uh, varieties being developed just for forage. Uh, usually what it is, it's a, it's a later dormancy, uh, soybean variety, but there's a lot of selection now for leafiness and, mm-hmm. and some that'll actually, uh, withstand grazing and so forth. Okay. But yeah, you get, you get some tremendous protein levels, uh, decent yields, but there has been a yield drag in comparison to that to yeah. some other, other types of, uh, uh, products in the past, but they're, 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 looking, they're continuing to improve. So we talked about grasses mostly here. We just brought up soybeans. Uh, are there other, uh, and I had mentioned cowpeas and sun hemp, but let's touch on that. Um, are there other legumes that are protein producers that, that maybe I should have highlighted a little bit more? Um, those of you who are, who are experts in this field here that, that we should use. Any comments on that? This is Marlon Winger from uh, Casper, Wyoming. Yep. Uh, we've used uh, spring forage peas, and we've also been pretty impressed with uh, forage collards in our grazing mix. Not that they produce nitrogen, but uh, they can be well over 20% protein mm-hmm. uh, when you clip them. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I barely mentioned brassicas uh, here, and there are typically not very uh, many brassicas that are used heavily over the summer. They're more a cool season. That's what they are. But uh, I'm glad you brought that up, Marlon, because um, I, I should have probably emphasized that a little bit more. So the use of brassicas is definitely an, another uh, one. I know there's work on forage brassicas, too. Uh, again, I'll defer to others here. Uh, what are, what are, what do we see? What, what should we know about using brassicas as forage? Uh, Marlon or Scott, I see you're on. Chris, go ahead, Chris. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to hog up the Well, hey, <laughs> you're the resident expert, so. It's your turn. Uh, the, uh, see, what, uh, and I, brassicas make a great, uh, great forage. The biggest uh, trick with that is also including some kind of fiber. Yeah. Uh, the cows get cows get kind of loose uh, when, yeah. uh, when when there's no fiber included right. with it as well. So yeah. pretty kale or, yeah. or any, anything else. Yeah. So. Yeah. Good. Other questions here having to do with cover crops and forage. Okay, i just going to go over some of the chats that came in here. Ian from the U.K. says, we grazed some cows on a multi-species mix, and they loved the sunflowers. And I've heard that before. So sunflowers were not mentioned here, but uh, definitely including some of them in the mix is, is, uh, is, is uh, again, is something that uh, is definitely being used. Um, also, he follows up and says, in the U.K., Forage brassicas are very widely used. Kale, rape, hybrids of that. Kale and rape hybrids, stubble turnips, forage rape, etc. So, um, uh, so that's just good to know that the brassicas certainly have a seat at the table as well. And, uh, um, Marion from, uh, Wyoming also says 
he he says he loves the sunflowers of very high energy and high oil content. So uh, sunflowers is another another one we need to add to our list here uh, of potential use of forage. And I would also say, again, they certainly qualify to double up as a cover crop as well. Other comments or questions? I'm going to open it up to any any question at all now about cover crops. can be about uh, the forage or any other cover crop question you may have. I'll just put in a comment here. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, fall rye that I planted last year is starting to head out. I left okay. some of it alone in my garden, and it start, the heads are starting to come out. Okay. It's, it's amazing to see how fast that Gross. Yep. Yeah, there's nothing like rye. That's for sure. It uh, it grows like inches a day. That's for sure. And uh, and just on the temperature thing there, like um, you were talking about your your lows. Like our winter, we had it was fairly typical mm-hmm. um, temperatures, but we had a lot of snow cover. But yeah. we had some periods where we were at the uh, minus thirty five Celsius, which is well, almost. The same in Fahrenheit. Yeah, I know that. That's right. That's cold. And that if we had days that were zero Fahrenheit, that was that. Those were sometimes the highs for the week. Wow. Um, and it's 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 amazing how the, it just stuck around and comes right back up. So. Yeah, well, there's nothing tougher than cereal rye uh, for that mm-hmm. that I'm aware of, and um, I know there's a lot of work going on now in trying to make more species more cold tolerant. And I think that's one of the exciting, uh, I guess you'd say research, uh, edges that are out there that's, that's occurring. So that'll help yeah. widen the opportunity for others, uh, for, for more cover crop planting later, either later in the season or simply just for survivability because that, that's one of the challenges of cover cropping is to, is to, you know, have, have that wider, window of opportunity to establish and also survive. Any other follow-up questions or uh, Chris, do you have something? I just had one in the comment, Steve, when earlier in your presentation, you mentioned, and, and I agree with hundred percent, you know, doubling, doubling the rate basically between a um, cover crop rate compared to that of a forage rate. Uh, the only concern with that, and as you know, and we had the testing there at your place, yeah. would be with, you know, um, it includes the radish or any yeah. other species like yeah. that that could take over and really kind of uh, yeah. uh, eliminate, some, you know, basically I'll compete some of the other uh, products, you know, mm-hmm. grasses and so forth. Mm-hmm. Good. Thanks. Um, I'll just put it out there. Ian's asking, uh, Ian's from the UK he says, what uh, cover, what conference or event in the U S would be recommended for talking about this and forages? I, I guess it's for that. Um, does any of you have any ideas? I mean, Scott listed here the one in Calgary. I, I, I'm actually speaking at the one in Calgary, uh, in the middle of November at this, I think it's called the, I think it's a national Canadian meeting on forage and grassland or something like that. But, uh, I'm actually going to be speaking there in Calgary, Alberta and I'll, I'll post that. The schedule's not quite finalized yet, uh, on that so everyone can see. So I've never been there. I'm assuming it's a, it's a, it's a good one. Are there other conferences that have to deal with forage and cover crops uh, in the U.S. that any of you guys know about, or other ones in Canada for that matter? 
I'll send around that link. Uh, Scott just posted it here. I see. I'll send around that link, Ian, so you can get it. The one in Canada. Um, so, um, Herb or Chris or, or anyone else? Um, I see Colton just joined uh, uh, here. I don't know where. Where's a good? Uh, what are some conferences you recommend that have some good forage type uh, information on? The um, AFGC, the American Forage and Grasslands Council, has both uh, statewide conferences as okay. well as national. Okay. So I can just look that up and find it. And Yeah, I know there's um, – this whole thing of forage is certainly picking up steam among the cover cropping farmers. And there's more and more uh, information out there. Uh, I mean, if you want to spend some time yourself just Googling on uh, on the Internet, YouTube, what – there's all kinds of stuff out there you could tap into um, for that as far as that goes. Um, so, Lloyd, do you have any comments, questions? Yeah, I, I, I uh, had to step away for a second, so I missed the last 10 minutes of your, okay. your briefing. But uh, uh, the one question uh, 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 with your sun hemp and uh, uh, sorghum sedan grass, yeah. uh, you take one cutting off uh, – uh, do you recommend then planting your winter cover crop after that? If, based on my uh, experience, if you plant it intending to take it off for forage, you're going to typically plant it thicker. And when I did it last year, we lost the uh, the 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 other uh, hairy vetch, triticale, crimson clover. It was just too thick. So if you are planting it do a forage, I would, at this point, I would recommend you do a second follow-up planting that the cover crop over the winter. Um, it's just a compromise you're going to have to make. And uh, if, if you if you plant it thinner, then you're not going to get as much forage if forage is your option. But right, sometimes yeah. sometimes it's like, well, I'm really, I really don't need like 2.5 tons of forage. You know, one ton's fine. I'll take that. It's worth it. If you, if that's yeah. what you're, you know, and then, then it may survive. You follow what I'm saying? It gets a little tricky though. You, you just have to understand the risk, the cost of seed going into that. But I hate to people, I hate for people to spend $25 worth of seed that, that they have to replant again because, you know, it's the cost right. of seeding as well. So I, 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 would be my opinion, if you're going for forage, the first cut, then go for forage, then come back and go for cover crop. Uh, that's, that's well, what I, I would say. Last year, after my triticale that I harvested for seed, I went out and I did a uh, uh, rye, uh, clover, uh, radish, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, sorghum. I had one bag of sorghum from what we planted earlier yeah. left, and I just threw it in the mix and broadcasted it and used my vertical tillage uh, and uh, and ran it in. And I, you know, I, I wanted to demonstrate if I could spread. Uh, have an even spread because the, the sorghum mm-hmm. would be a different yeah. plant that yeah. stick out, and yeah. I, it, it got as high as my tractor. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, they talk about all the the uh, acids and you know yeah. poisons that sorghum yeah. gets yeah. towards fall. So so instead of uh, harvesting it, I just uh, uh, bush hogged it and knocked it down. Okay, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and which prompted me to think, well, maybe instead of cutting so much triticale for forage in the spring, mm-hmm. maybe we'll uh, opt to wait and plant some uh, sorghum and sun hemp or something like that and get a good cutting off of that and then go with the, the cover 
Yeah. For the winter. Well, I'll just touch this. We got to wrap this up soon, but, uh, you had mentioned, uh, the, the acid. It's, uh, prussic acid. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. I always say it. Prussic acid, um, is what can occur after a killing frost. You don't want to harvest like a sorghum right, yeah, yeah. for, for a week or more. Um, and there's also an issue with nitrates after, um, a, if you have a significant rainfall event, you should, if it's actively growing, like at a, at a good stage to cut it, you should wait because you may have too many nitrates in that uh, stem that could cause major problems, really. Uh, so there's yeah. that's some of the fine, fine-tuning fine uh, points there. Um, I don't know if, um, Herb, if you're still there and want to address the prussic acid or the nitrate thing. I, I do know that that's something that can catch you if you're not, if you're not unaware of it. Um, or uh, uh, maybe Colton could, I, or someone yeah, else. I knew it was out there. I just didn't know all the parameters, so we just mowed it and left it in the field. Okay. Well, <laughs> hey, I'm sure it helped your uh, – I'm sure your earthworms are happy and everything. Uh, yeah. But that's another good uh, point there that uh, you, you need to know some of this stuff because there's – some people have had uh, health issues with their animals uh, in, in those two scenarios, prussic acid or high nitrates. Uh, in your in your crop, so right. Uh, Ian, I see you have. You said you followed up there and said you're you're interested in a conference in the more uh, arable or cereal growing areas. Um, I did think of the the no till on the plains conference, which, uh, in spite of its name, currently as a lot of these no till conferences, a lot of talk about cover crops and grazing. And I know that there certainly is and will be topics. That's that's in uh, the end of January, I believe, but uh, that's definitely uh, one that might be uh, up your alley. I'll jot that down here, uh, no-till in the plains. Okay, uh, anyone have one more question? And we're going to wrap it up. One more question anybody has? Okay, uh, thanks again for your attention. Thanks for your great questions. Appreciated the uh, the dialogue and everything. Um, I did. I guess I did forget to to mention what we're gonna, what I'm planning to talk about next week here. Uh, just about forgot that. Uh, basically, I want to talk about cover crop failures. Do you have a plan B? And sometimes it's you know not really maybe necessary to even think about that, but um, we got to talk about that. Not everything I do succeeds, and I'm sure the same with all of you uh, here as well. So. Want to talk about setting yourself up for uh, success, even if you have an initial failure, and uh, how to plan for that and so forth. So that's what we'll be uh, talking about next week. So looking forward to seeing you in the end. In the meantime, have a fantastic week.